host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Alina Chan. Alina Chan is a genetic engineer. She currently is a postdoctoral scientist at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She has a background in genetics and virus biology. She's also the author of the new book, Viral, which she co-wrote with Matt Ridley, that comes out on Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. Alina is the first guest of the podcast who I'm welcoming back for a second conversation. And the reason is the subject, which is COVID-19. Um, if you've listened to any of the podcast episodes prior to this one, including the one with Alina, you know that I have talked to a few people about SARS-CoV-2, the virus, as well as the COVID-19 pandemic. We've talked with various individuals on the podcast about the biology of the virus, what we know about some of the vaccines that are out there, and what we know about the pandemic, including how this virus actually got into humans. That's the subject of Alina's book that she explores with Matt Ridley in great detail. The book is not one that comes to a conclusion. We still don't know whether the virus arose through natural means, meaning that it hopped to humans by way of an intermediate species, another mammalian species, versus the hypothesis that it accidentally leaked from a research lab, such as the Wuhan Institute of Virology or another. This is an unresolved problem, but it has obviously been in the news and been very controversial over the last few months. It is a rapidly changing and updating story. Almost every day you hear something new about it. Several months ago, it was considered almost taboo to suggest that this virus may have arisen through an accidental laboratory leak. Now that idea is taken much more seriously as things have come to light, and one has to consider the possibility that that is true if one cares about the actual truth of the matter. And so Alina and I discussed the book. We go over many, many key events and people and details in the story and how things have transpired over the last few months. We go all the way back to the SARS-1 pandemic and talked about what happened there and what we learned from it. We talk about the SARS-CoV-2 virus and where we think it started and how it spread. We talk about the Wuhan seafood market and the so-called pangolin papers. We talk about the close connection between bats and viruses and why bats are such an important piece of this puzzle. We talk about the idea of a laboratory leak versus a natural zoonotic origin of the virus. We talk about gain-of-function research and different aspects of the SARS-CoV-2 genome and what they tell us about the virus and where it may have come from. We also talk about institutions such as the NIH and the EcoHealth Alliance and the World Health Organization and the role that they've played in different ways in this whole pandemic and how it has played out. We discussed a recent inter interview with Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, and some things that he said that may not have been fully accurate that we clarify. And we also talk about the role that a Anonymous internet sleuths, both scientists and non-scientists, have played in uncovering evidence relevant to understanding the origins of COVID-19. So if this is a topic you're interested in, Alina and I went into a lot of detail, and I highly, rec highly recommend listening to this episode if you're interested in getting up to speed on exactly where we're at and what we still don't know about where the virus actually originated. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can 
mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Alina Chan. Alina Chan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me for the second time. Yeah, you're the first uh, the first guest who's come back for a second visit. Um, part of the reason you're back is that what you're working on and what we're talking about is just so timely and, and moving so quickly. We're, of course, talking about the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and COVID-19 because this is uh, it's obviously a relevant and ongoing mystery and it's it's changing very quickly. You guys have written, you and Matt Ridley, the science writer, have written a book called Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. And it's a really interesting book. One of the one of the reasons it's interesting is because you know by the time it comes out practically within a few weeks or months, you're going to be probably ready to update it. And I just want to basically start at what you might call the beginning of this story. So we're going to be talking about where this virus potentially came from. Before I even ask that, I should just ask, you should just say up front, very quickly, very concisely, do we know the origin of the virus yet? No, we don't know the origin of the virus yet. So right now, the focus should be on gathering more information, not guessing where it came from. Exactly. So that's one of the things I liked about the book is by the time I got to the end of it, um, you guys didn't end it by saying, you know, this is the end. You, you ended it by saying, we don't know yet, and this is still an ongoing thing. So from a, a scientific perspective, I thought that it was a really, you know, it was really nice to see someone say that and frame everything in those terms, because you often don't see that in, in the public sphere. But anyways, the story in some ways starts in this copper mine in Southern China. So tell us about this mine and tell us about You've got this. You've you've got a literal timeline in the book in the back, and the very first entry is 2012, and it says six men are hospitalized in April and May of 2012 after working in a bat-infested mine in the southern part of China by a bat virus suspected. A bat a bat virus is suspected, and top laboratories, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, start to search the mine for viruses. So so what is important about this mine and why does the timeline start there? So let's picture what's happening in 2012 in China. Uh, about 10 years has passed from the first SARS epidemic, 
uh, that occurred in South China, in Guangdong. And there are these teams of scientists in China searching for the natural reservoir. So they already have found the proximal intermediate host of SARS-1, which are civet cats. Uh, and there's a strong link uh, to the wildlife trade in terms of where the first SARS virus came from. But they haven't found the natural reservoir. So where did the civet cats get their SARS virus from. So they're hunting in bats, looking all over South China where these viruses tend to be found. And just then they uh, hear about these cases uh, in 2012, six miners uh, were admitted to Kunming Hospital in the capital of uh, Yunnan province. And they present with a mysterious viral pneumonia. So their treat of antifungals doesn't work. Uh, half of them eventually die. Uh, miraculously, one person was in the hospital for more than 100 days. He recovered after getting anticoagulants, so anti-blood clotting uh, therapy. So there were some aspects of what disease they had that looked like COVID-19, but not identical because none of these minors passed the disease to anyone else. But mm. you can imagine the attention it drew. So uh, the top SARS expert in the country, Zhong Nanshan, was drawn in. He's kind of like the Dr. Fauci of China. And so he comes in and he looks at the case data and he says, go to that cave immediately, that mine, and sample the bats that send them to check for SARS viruses, check the patient samples for SARS antibodies. These antibodies, uh, sorry, the patient samples are sent off to Wuhan Institute of Virology as well as other places for testing. And in a medical thesis, as well as a doctoral thesis that came from the uh, then uh, from, from the now director of the Chinese CDC lab, we hear that these patient samples tested positive for antibodies. And the doctoral thesis says it's antibodies for SARS virus. So the medical thesis concludes the six people suffered from a SARS-like illness and might have been infected by SARS viruses from okay. bats. So it's 2012. This is after the SARS-1 epidemic in China mm -hmm. that happened earlier, earlier on. And obviously, it's before today. So it's before the SARS-CoV-2 epidemic happens. There's a mine in southern China. It's filled with bats because it's just a big cave that bats like to hang out in. And it's a copper mine. So there's miners down there doing mining work. Six of them get seriously ill. And it looks like a pneumonia type of illness that is not unlike SARS-1 or SARS-2. Half of them die. And at the time, to reiterate what you were saying... So by 2012, they figured out that the SARS-1 virus came to humans from civet cats, but mm -hmm. they didn't figure out yet how it got to civet cats, and they thought mm -hmm. it might have come from bats. Mm -hmm. So these six miners get sick, half of them die, they're told to go check the cave, and they're collecting bat viruses. So fill in the blanks there for us. When they go to the cave, how do they actually do that? They have to physically capture the bats, and are they sending saliva samples or the blood samples from the bats back to labs? Are they bringing bats physically back to the labs? How does that work? A lot of this information only came to light through the work of like open source intelligence, uh, like uh, detectives, like internet sleuths and detectives. So they were scouring the internet looking for archive pages and documents and thesis from even the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, and they found that, yes, they were actually capturing bats. Uh, and sending them up to Wuhan Institute of Virology. But they were also taking samples so they could lay uh, sheets on the ground and collect fecal samples. Mm. They could trap the bats of gnats and, and also just take samples from them. Uh, they found, at least to our knowledge, between 2012 and 2015, nine of the closest relatives to SARS-CoV-2 
at the time SARS-CoV-2 emerged in Wuhan. So we don't know how many more viruses they got after 2015, but we know that between 2012 and 2015, they had at least nine of the closest relatives to SARS-CoV-2. Okay, so they, they went to this mine, they collected bat samples in different ways. And you're saying uh, at the t the very first SARS-CoV-2 virus variant that we know about from the current pandemic, they mm -hmm. have nine different viruses that are very close relatives to that virus. Yes. At least. There could be more, we just don't know. Yes. And you're saying that all of that information came to us pretty much from like random people with anonymous accounts on the internet just digging around and finding stuff? There were a few independent scientists uh, like Rosanna Segreto and Mona Rahaka, uh, but by and large, it took the work of a lot of independent detectives or, or analysts. They had to go through all of the papers uh, from these research institutes, go through their grant proposals, go through like leaked documents, uh, archived websites, and then put it all together, uh, sorting through all of the sample IDs to see that actually, hey, we most of the viruses we know about from the Wuhan Institute of Virology were collected before 2016. So after 2016, we, it's just a blank page. We don't know what they found. I see. So from all of this evidence, we deduced that there's at least these nine viruses, but they were captured you know, back around 2012. Mm -hmm. We don't really know what's happening since then. And just to fill in the blanks for people here. So you mentioned that they found a lot of this information by digging through the theses, the thesis mm -hmm. that was written by individual medical students or individual graduate students in China. And I just want to say for people that don't know, nobody goes in. <laughs> no one reads the thesis of a grad. Like no one on the internet is going to Google around and just like for fun, go read a medical thesis or a PhD student's thesis. That almost like that essentially never happens. You would have to be like, like maybe my mom would go read my thesis or something like that. But like no one's going to go like look at this stuff. I think even parents don't read their, their children's <laughs> thesis. It's, it's too technical and dry. Right, and, right. Uh, but these theses, uh, they are really carefully written. It's not like you can write a blog post and put yeah. that down as your thesis. Like You actually yeah. have to have supervisors signing off on it. And so when the medical thesis said that the conclusion after studying all these cases from that mine was that they had been sickened with a SARS-like bad coronavirus, it's serious. Like It's not like he was guessing. <laughs> Right, Many people had to right. sign off on the thesis. Right. Like, this is the virus. I literally spent four years studying it. Here's the sequence. Um, it, it's very well documented in something like that, as obscure as that document might be. And so these internet sleuths, literally independent scientists or even people on the internet who we don't even necessarily know their identity, dug this stuff up and put it on, like literally posted it on social media. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, so they, they shared all of these documents uh, via links on Twitter. Um, and it was actually quite surprising how this happened. So it, it relates to my work, actually. So I had put up a tutorial. So it's like a, a thread on Twitter that goes through, uh, for example, my preprint. And it attracted a lot of attention from uh, individuals across the world who were really interested in this topic on the origins. And they, they f found each other on this thread and they started talking to each other, asking questions, like um, finding answers for each other. And boom, like the medical thesis shows up. <laughs> the seeker is, is the one who found it. He managed to log in into a Chinese thesis database using uh, passwords and usernames he found online. And he, he posted uh, the medical thesis and the doctoral thesis uh, showing that, describing these cases in great detail. So this is like, this guy's 
literal his name his twitter name is <laughs> the seeker and he's basically a digital private detective who just mm -hmm. took it upon himself to somehow find login credentials to some chinese database and then personally read through all of this arcane documentation yep <laughs> and post it on twitter the internet it works <laughs> <laughs> okay so this is sort of an organic process. It's a decentralized process. Individual human beings with names like The Seeker um, are just digging this stuff up and posting it. What um, Do we know who that person is, actually? Yeah, and we reveal that in our book. But I, I won't go into too much detail uh, on, on okay. outside of the book. Yeah, so you have to find we'll, out through the book. <laughs> we'll, leave it, we'll leave it to the book. But it's, it's an interesting little subplot, I think. And I now follow The Seeker on Twitter. How did social networks, so at this time when this is happening and people are, put a time to this, what, what time um, on the timeline are we talking about here when this stuff is starting to bubble up on the internet? And how is this being handled by Twitter and by Facebook and by, uh, by Reddit and other websites? So this was in May 2020. Uh, most uh, platforms had banned any talk of a lab origin, whether like lab, lab accidents or bioweapon, they banned it all. Uh, it was only on Twitter that you could actually talk about it. But even even so, it was viewed with a lens of these people are crazy conspiracy theorists. So, I mean, I, I clearly didn't think so because my preprint, uh, which we posted online at the beginning of uh, May, said that we considered it plausible that mm -hmm. this virus might have an accidental lab origin. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the thing that is so um, fascinating and infuriating, I guess, about this whole thing is, so I'll just reiterate what you said. We're in 20, um, you said early 2020 at this point? Still um, May 2020, so actually May a bit later. <laughs> so May 2020 at this point, it's considered basically um, forbidden to talk about an accidental lab leak as a possibility. So no one was mm -hmm. saying like, oh my God, this definitely leaked from a lab. People were just digging around and, and people like you and others were saying it could have leaked from a lab. There's some indications that are consistent with that. And we don't actually know that it was a wildlife spillover yet. Let's talk about it. And this was sort of like that discussion was more or less banned from large parts of the internet. And you've, as you've said, you've literally got groups of users on Twitter sort of whispering to each other almost online, trying to just discuss the possibility. Yeah, so it, it was a really lively group of people talking to each other, and they eventually found founded a, a group like an internet sleuth team called Drastic. Uh, but unfortunately, since the book was published, Drastic has fractured into two Drastics. So uh, what I'll say about this group of people is that they're really tenacious and, and determined they will like find as much information as they can, uh, but they're really separate people. So it's not like they're all friends with each other and mm -hmm. they agree with each other. They, they each bring different things to the table, both good and bad. And we have to acknowledge them for their contributions, but also it doesn't mean that we, we say, we put them on a pedestal and mm -hmm. like everything they do is good. Yeah, yeah. What does, um, what does it actually say about the, the state of our official like sense-making bodies that so much of this information has come from anonymous individuals like this you know is it is it strange to you or what do you think about the fact that all of this evidence that's bubbled up and all of you know the, the stitching together of what actually happened and when has come from the sort of organic semi-anonymous internet process rather than through our actual official institutional apparatus 
So it's actually a pretty um, sensitive issue amongst the drastic team, for example, that actually some of them are real scientists. They actually have degrees in, in related fields like biology, life sciences, uh, but they have been lumped together as internet sleuths and outsiders because none of them are really part of the scientific establishment. Uh, and hopefully I can communicate this better, but since the beginning of the pandemic, there have been some scientists, some experts who call themselves the authority. So they're like, we are the ones who know what's happening and we can tell you what's a conspiracy theory or not. And anyone else, even other scientists who tell you otherwise are unscientific, they are unqualified or they're, they're conspiracy theorists. So uh, because of the vacuum that the established scientists left, uh, all of these open source intelligence or internet sleuths or independent scientists had to come in and fill that niche to find the origin of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So again, May 2020 is where we're at, at this part of the story. This evidence is bubbling up on the, on the internet, but at the time, the official scientific authorities, science with a capital S, what are they saying at the time about the, the plausible origins? Well, they, they said it's a conspiracy theory. Uh, there's even a uh, article from, from a really well-known Infectious Diseases Institute in America that, that calls a lab accident where a natural virus is released. They say that's a conspiracy theory too. So um, they don't leave any room for the possibility of someone being infected by a virus they collected from nature. Mm -hmm accidentally transmitting it to people outside of the lab. I see. So if they were calling it a conspiracy theory at the time, does that mean mm -hmm. that like this has never been observed before, that a virus has never accidentally leaked from a lab before? No, that, that couldn't be further away from the truth. So there's actually quite a few accidental releases of dangerous pathogens. Uh, for example, there's a statistic in 2019, there were on average more than four accidental releases of select agents in the US. So select agents means like the most dangerous of the dangerous pathogens. So this is not counting any of the other less dangerous human pathogens. And surprisingly, MERS is not even on that list. So we don't know how many times MERS might have been accidentally spilled or uh, put, someone was exposed to it in labs in the US. Um, and in fact, there are, there's so many examples like smallpox, SARS-1, Marburg virus, for example, and, and so I'll zoom in on the story of Marburg virus, because prior to it escaping from a lab, no one had ever known about this virus before. So the first time it was characterized, it was after it had spilled from three separate laboratories around in, in Europe, because samples from Africa had been sent up there uh, from monkeys, from monkeys had been sent up there for making vaccines. And the the lab personnel that received it didn't know about the virus and they handled the uh, tissues of the monkeys and got sick at three separate institutes so and caused an outbreak so it's totally reasonable that when you send samples of pathogens especially <laughs> across the world and someone on the other end receives it they might get infected without mm -hmm. doing any dangerous research yeah i mean when you say it out loud it almost sounds silly it's like when you send viruses around <laughs> the world from person to person sometimes they get away or they infect someone yeah so it happens all the time so viruses leak from labs often viruses also jump from one species to another often these are both common things and we should expect mm -hmm. a priori without knowing anything that either scenario is perfectly within the realm of possibility 
especially when there is a laboratory in the very city of the outbreak that is known for doing that research. So if, if there was no lab in that city that was doing that kind of research, then, you know, fine, like, then it's not on the table. But <laughs> in yeah. this case, there's a coronavirus yeah. lab <laughs> that does this specific work at the location where we think the outbreak first happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, when you say it out loud, it's like, OK, should we should at least consider this. Um, so let's let's actually. Um, so we just talked about May 2020, and this is sort of beginning, sort of the the beginning phase of the pandemic. Um, I remember at this time, right, we were already in the U.S. I'm on the west coast of the U.S., so we had already sort of started working from home and everything. Let's actually back up. So because at that time, um, there was still a lot of information we didn't know that we do know now. Let's talk about like the very first SARS-CoV-2 human infections that we know about. When do mm -hmm. we think that happened, and where exactly do we think that happened? So one major challenge is that up till today, we don't have very clear data describing the first cases of COVID-19 diagnosed and, and or even retrospectively detected in Wuhan. Um, and, and part of that has to do with political reasons. Like there have been people in China, like really brave people in China who tried to archive all of the news as it was emerging from Wuhan mm. and they were sent to prison. So, uh, from what is still available online, what has been successfully archived, for example, on GitHub even, we know that uh, some of the earliest cases might have been as early as November 2019 in Wuhan. But according to all of the formal official sources, the first case uh, only started showing symptoms in the first week of December 2019. I see. So according to official sources from China, first mm -hmm. cases are December 2019. But mm -hmm. what you're saying is there's other evidence that shows as early as November, and that evidence was put onto the internet into archives by Chinese citizens, and mm -hmm. they were not supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. And some of those people are literally in prison right now for for putting that online some of them were recently released from prison uh, but there are some who have disappeared completely so no one knows where they've been taken to so it's very serious like that just for preserving the news just for preserving records of, mm -hmm. of what happened in Wuhan you can be disappeared I see so you feel confident in stating that the first cases of COVID-19 probably happened in November of 2019 if not earlier, but the we, we can say that at least November 2019 is this probable starting point. Yes, at least. Yeah. I see. Okay, so this is, you know, that would be seven years after 2012. So this is about seven years after the miners got sick with the mystery virus. Yep. Okay. So first cases happen in late 2019, we think. Um, what Talk to us about the seafood market, because I remember early on, people were talking a lot about this Chinese seafood market, and that this was a good candidate for where the jump, the, the potential jump from one species into humans may have been made. So why were people talking about the seafood market, and what do we, what do we know about it? So we know for sure that one of the earliest clusters of COVID-19 in Wuhan was associated with this Huanan seafood market in central uh, Wuhan. So um, this was a very large marketplace. Like on average, they said about 10,000 people visited a day, like 10,000 people in one market per day. So um, however, the amount of wildlife trade in there was diminutive. So if you look at the actual data that's become available this year, 
on average, there were about 11 civet cats per month. So across the entire city, so not just this market, but other markets in the city. So mm -hmm. central China is not really well known for this kind of uh, wild animal life trade, especially like wild mammals. Uh, and this South is China is more well known for that. I see. And this is important, right? So we're talking about a seafood market. So there's probably lots of fish and crabs and like seafood type creatures. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when a virus jumps from one animal into humans, it typically comes from a mammal. So like a civet is a mammal, a bat is a mammal. They're relatively closely related to us because we're mammals. So it would be, you would not expect a virus like this to come into humans from like a fish or something like that. No. <laughs> yeah. So that's why you mentioned the wildlife trade. So it's a seafood market, but there is some mammalian species that are being traded in that market. I mean, they, this, there has been a pretty fantastical theory floated by uh, Chinese government officials that it's possible the virus came from a batch of frozen lobsters from Maine, USA, because somehow the seafood market had been receiving shipments of lobsters from Maine, USA. But I think anyone who has been has received the scientific education should know that this is not this is not even possible like it yeah, yeah. And, and so the idea here is just from an evolutionary perspective for a virus to jump from one species to another it needs to change right it needs to mm -hmm. adapt to the new species and in order to have any chance of doing that or any plausible chance of doing that the two species need to be relatively similar right because like, like if you go from one mammal to another, most mammals have the same basic cell types, lots of the same receptors, a, a lot of similar molecular machinery that the virus in one species can um, recognize in the other. Now, when you go to more distant evolutionary relatives, like a lobster in this case, they're just so different from us physiologically that there's much, much, much lower chance of that happening. I mean, has anything like that ever happened where you go from a crustacean or an insect to a, a mammal? Well, I mean, the insect-borne uh, infectious diseases, yes, but but not this type. So not not coronaviruses, not not SARS-like viruses. These require a more similar uh, animal host. So uh, people even wonder whether they can jump from bats directly into humans. Mm. That's why up to today they keep searching for an intermediate host because a lot of people don't think that a SARS-like virus can jump, make the huge leap from bats to humans. It's too different. I see. Um, but but that's the mystery. So when the uh, local CDC and the Beijing CDC went to that uh, seafood market, they found zero traces of live mammals. They sampled all of the carcasses they could find. They yep. found zero traces of SARS-CoV-2. So the only evidence they found was that in some of the sewage or like environmental surfaces, like doors and tables, they found some uh, viral content. But this is totally expected. Like if you look at the cruise that was first hit uh, by COVID-19, the whole place was plastered with virus on like all the surfaces. Like this is why there was all that hygiene theater earlier in the pandemic. Like everyone was yeah. cleaning everything because when the sick people around, the virus is in the air. It's all over the place. I see. Yeah. So seafood market, it's a candidate location for where this thing may have come from. Probably not where it actually came from for the reasons that you mentioned. So then the other thing that I remember people were talking about were pangolins. So mm -hmm. you're going to have to explain what the hell a pangolin is because most <laughs> people do not know what a pangolin is. And so walk us through the so-called pangolin papers after that. You have an entire chapter in the book called the pangolin papers. So pangolins are these scaly anteaters. Uh, when they encounter a predator, they, they can curl up into a tiny ball and they have these hard scales. Uh, their scales are kind of made like 
with keratin with our nails, for example, uh, and it protects them from from being mauled by a lion, for example. Uh, and they're found in several places. They're found in Africa. They're also found in China and parts of Asia. They've been highly trafficked into China, especially in, in Vietnam, because people believe that eating the scales has medicinal properties. Mm. So it, it's a really tragic story because you're just eating nails. You're eating like keratins, but you're paying thousands of dollars for these really poor, like endangered species that uh, unfortunately they get sick along the way as you traffic them out of their home countries into mm. like like really scary, dangerous like, marketplace in the wildlife trade in China. And so in February, 2020, uh, there was a news conference in China and some scientists claimed that they had found a 99% match to SARS-CoV-2 in a batch of smuggled pangolins. And pangolins so, are mammals, right? Yes, they are mammals. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and that drove the internet wild because people had been looking for the inter in intermediate host really hard. Mm -hmm. Like scientists had been telling them, even in February 2020, don't worry, we will find it soon. There's so many smart scientists in China. They independently found the intermediate host of SARS-1. So there's no reason why they shouldn't find the intermediate host of SARS-2 like immediately. So everyone was just like on edge waiting for the intermediate host to be found. And when they heard a 99% match with pangolins had been found, they, they were just erupted on the internet, like all the scientists, uh, journal editors, yep, <laughs> they all wanted the pangolin. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and it fit like the, the story that had been told a million times, right? Like people are bad, we traffic like pitiful animals, we, we are horrendous to them and now we get sick because we have these uncivilized behaviors. So it fit the story that we've been told again and again by scientists, by the media. Um, but when those pangolin papers, four of them got released from China within a span of three days, when they came out, actually it showed that that pangolin coronavirus wasn't that closely related to uh, SARS-CoV-2. And actually all four papers described the same pangolin coronavirus from a single batch of sick pangolins. So even though there were just papers everywhere, like everyone was talking about pangolins, actually it was a single batch, like only two or three sick pangolins that mm. resulted in this data that was just marketed across multiple papers. So you're saying it was not, when you actually scrutinize the data, it was not close enough to be the culprit here? Yeah, not at all. Okay. So, but, but you said it was a 99% match. Was it less than 99 or is that, is that misleading to focus on the 99% match? So it turned out not to be a 99% match. Ah. The scientists who gave that number at the news conference might have been too excited and they gave the wrong number. So when it came so out, it was actually, misspoke. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but, but the, the effect of that news conference and all these papers was to drive the media into a frenzy yeah, about pangolins. Yeah. yeah. And then afterwards, China seemed to suggest that they would curb the wildlife trade, but actually they, they banned the consumption of wild animals, but they actually didn't ban the trafficking of animals for medicine for mm. medicinal purposes. And we know that pangolins are not trafficked for their meat. Right. <laughs> They're trafficked for the, for the scales, for the medicine. So, so in so effect, nothing happened. Yeah, in effect, nothing happened. The regulations are not the kind of regulations one would need to prevent this from mm -hmm. happening again. Why do you think that is? Is it because probably so many people in that part of the world, including the government officials that would be responsible for crafting these regulations, might themselves believe that there are medicinal properties to these things? I'm sure that the is a small number of people who still believe that eating pangolin scales has some health benefit. Like probably they're just the most desperate situation possible where they think it can cure cancer or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
the wildlife trade in China over the years is it has evolved. So the, the consumption of these wild animals and their products is actually part of a rich person culture. So only mm. rich people will spend thousands of dollars on these things just to show off that, hey, like I have all these wild animals that we're eating uh, for dinner tonight. It's so it's not consumption. It's, yeah, it's yeah. not it's not like uh, I don't have pork today, so I'm going to eat some raccoon dog. No, it's not like that. Like it's. I see. It's very wealthy people showing off their wealth. Yeah, like I have all these exotic game on my table and I can pay like two thousand dollars to eat half a pangolin. So it's uh, it's not what it used to be, but people were just living sustenance off the land, like I hunting see. wild I animals see. for game. Yeah. Interesting. So this wildlife trafficking uh, network, which is probably quite vast over there. Um, yes. it really, it really hasn't been, um, tamped down at all. I don't think that they believe SARS-CoV-2 came from pangolins. So for the people who, it's not who have made a fashion out of eating pangolins, like this is like that, why would we change anything? Okay. So let's circle back to, to bats and talk a little bit more about why bats are so, often tied to to viral outbreaks like this. So you mentioned that, you know, we often go from bats, the virus will, a virus will often hop from a bat to another mammal to us. But why is it that bats seem to be especially associated with viruses? Is that actually true? Is there something about the biology of bats that makes them good reservoirs for viruses like this? Yes. So bats are really good reservoirs for viruses. And it was a debate for a long time amongst specialists in that field about whether bats have more viruses than other animals. And recently it was proven, yes, they actually do carry much more viral diversity compared to other animals. Uh, they, they're the source of like Marburg, Ebola, Nipah, <laughs> coronaviruses like SARS, MERS, you can go on for days. Um, they have a very unique immune system that they have evolved to be able to handle the kind of damage that viruses do to your body. So they, they don't uh, over respond to viruses, which is sometimes the thing that kills you. It's, it's not that the virus is killing you, it's that your body is over responding to it. So in bats, they've adapted over the years to not over respond. Um, and so it was pretty hilarious to me when there was a grant document leaked recently, uh, like September 2021, from the EcoHealth Alliance in collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and partners elsewhere around the world, where they wanted to vaccinate bats. <laughs> and, and I thought they don't need to be vaccinated. They are fine where they are. We do not need to be spraying bats with vaccines. So, oh, okay. So this organization called EcoHealth Alliance in collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology wanted to do something that you basically just said was a silly idea, which is vaccinate bats. Mm -hmm. And let's take you at your word for a sec. That's silly. So we've got some people with grant money just doing these really bizarre experiments or proposing to do them. What is the EcoHealth Alliance? How, how do they come into this and what should people know about this organization and how it actually operates? So the EcoHealth Alliance uh, emerged from a different wildlife conservation uh, organization. So they rebranded themselves as eco health. So like this one health idea where ecosystems and human uh, populations uh, depend on each other, right. And so they formed an international network of uh, collaborations and particularly with China, with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And one of their main goals was to build the, the biggest database of wildlife viruses you could have. And the purpose of this database, after you sample like millions of viruses or at least tens of thousands of viruses, uh, you would try to use that data to predict what 
future pandemics might happen. So trying to predict what viruses might spill over from bats or other animals into humans and cause a pandemic. Um, the problem is when the pandemic actually happened, that database that was hosted by the Wuhan Institute of Virology was not only taken offline, but has since then never been shared publicly or with anyone in the US as far as I can tell. So a database built for pandemic response was taken away when the pandemic happened. So, I mean, this is just so striking. I have to s say it back to you out loud. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that the EcoHealth Alliance, which, which is a US-based organization, mm -hmm. was working with the Wuhan Institute of Biology and a number of other uh, yes. labs probably. And the entire point of doing all of this work of going around the world and collecting all these viruses and bringing them to one place and tinkering with them in the lab was to create a database that we could look at and use um, in a preventative manner. We could say, look, here's all the viruses that we know that are out there. Here's all the ones that we think could jump from another animal to humans. And we should be using this as a kind of... Um, uh, strategic playbook of some kind to help prepare ourselves for another pandemic, prevent them from happening, or at least respond to them when they mm -hmm. do happen. And you're saying that database, which was supposed to be used for that exact reason, just mm -hmm. disappeared. Yeah. So no one, no one has access to it, at least outside of China? Yeah, as far as we can tell, no one has produced a copy of this database, which can exist as an Excel sheet. So it's, it's really stunning that the prototype for what would become a global virome project, a global collection of viruses, uh, that prototype just suddenly, the, the experts who had raised all these funds to, to build this database said mm -hmm. there was nothing useful in there, you don't need to see it. Mm -hmm. Like, they didn't even ask for it when they went to Wuhan mm -hmm. to visit well, the institute, yeah. How, how, when you talk about the funding, how much money was spent you know, order of magnitude ballpark, how much money was spent putting together this database and doing the related research? And where do places like EcoHealth get their funding from? At least hundreds of millions. So hundreds that's the range. Millions. Yeah. And they had proposed and they tried to raise up to a billion after the pandemic. They, they wanted to raise more money for more of this work to produce databases that disappear when a pandemic happens. So, um, so they, the, they raised hundreds of millions of dollars to create a database for a pandemic. A pandemic yeah. happened, the database disappeared because someone chose to why. make it disappear. Yeah. Yeah, and the yeah. response to that from the same organizations that put together this database that disappeared was mm -hmm. to raise even more money to create more databases. Yeah, but without sharing the data when a pandemic yeah. happens. <laughs> I mean, I just have to keep saying it out loud because it, it like it, it's stunning. Yeah. <laughs> so EcoHealth, where do they get their money from? They get their money from, from a variety of sources. Uh, many of the biggest funders are, are US government agencies, so like DOD, DAPA, um, the Pentagon, uh, but also from, from the NIH and NIAID. Sorry, there's so many abbreviations here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So Department of Defense, um, DARPA, places like that. And that kind of makes sense, right? If the idea here is to prevent some kind of pandemic or deal with it, that's mm -hmm. a, that is a matter of national defense. That mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, national Institutes of Health, um, that also makes sense because mm -hmm. right, this is a, this is a health, uh, global health-related um, topic. The NIH being a funder of EcoHealth, who's doing all of this stuff, that brings me to another question I have, which is Francis Collins. So Francis Collins um, is the head of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health in the United States. He has been for some time. Um, he 
you know, he's obviously a major player in, in how all of this funding gets distributed. The reason I want to bring him up is because I recently heard him speak on another podcast about this very topic. And we were just talking about origins of the virus. We were talking about, you know, uh, civet cats and pangolins and viruses jumping from bats to other species to humans. We were talking about that in comparison to the idea that it leaked accidentally from a lab. And at the very beginning of this conversation, Francis Collins said a couple of things that jumped out to me. Um, let me look at my notes here. So he was asked whether he thought there was a reasonable chance that the virus leaked from a lab, just a reasonable chance. Mm -hmm. He said he couldn't exclude that, but he thinks it's fairly unlikely. So he favors the uh, so-called natural origins hypothesis that it jumped from another species into humans. And he said something that made me pause. I actually went back and listened to it again to make sure I got it right before mm -hmm. having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. According to Francis Collins, he said it took 14 years to identify that civets, that mammalian species um, that we talked about before, that civets were the intermediate host species for SARS-1. But that contradicted something that Nicholas Wade told me in a conversation I had with him just a few weeks ago. Is that accurate? Did it take 14 years for us to, to identify civet cats as the intermediate host species for SARS-1? No, he must have misspoke uh, or misremembered. And that happens a lot on interviews. Like right? you you say something and then later you go back and you read your notes and you're oh, like, I confuse these two facts. So I, I don't blame yeah. him for it, but I do think a correction is necessary. That yeah, but but he did say, I just want to dwell on this for a second because he, he did say 14 years, but he also said in the context of mentioning that particular time frame, he said, you know, these things take time. It's going to take, you know, a while to identify enter any intermediate host species that's mm -hmm. out there. So he did basically emphasize that it takes time and we need more time. And that's perfectly fair. But just for context, how long did it take us to find that intermediate host species for SARS-1? Two months. Two months and then from, one week. Two months from when? So when do you start uh, counting oh, two months? Two months from knowing that the virus was a SARS, was a coronavirus. So two months from isolating the virus in culture. So mm -hmm. being able to, to, to see this, this is the virus that's causing the disease. So two mm -hmm. months from that, even using the technologies, which were way more basic, yeah, like, 20 years ago, it took them only two months to find not just animals, but lots of animal mm -hmm. traders who had pre-existing immunity to SARS-like viruses. So the, the scientists in China independently and rapidly established this really robust link between the animal trading uh, activities in Guangdong to the outbreaks. I see. And so, and that is my understanding that once you isolate a virus and you identify it, finding any intermediate host species from which it jumped into humans takes months typically when you, when you actually start looking for it. It took them days the second round. So SARS-1 huh. actually spilled over again at the end of 2003. And one of the index cases was a waitress and they asked her, are there civet cats in your restaurant? And she said, no, they didn't care. They just went straight to her restaurant anyway, and then there were cages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, they sampled the animals there, they sampled her coworkers and just stars everywhere. So it, it took them a week. <laughs> yeah, so, so SARS-1 actually leaked twice. Yeah, um, from nature. It, it jumped yeah. from nature, yeah. But um, six okay. times from a lab. So it it takes it take it usually takes a few months. That's not to say that there might not be cases where it could take longer. But yeah. you know, it's now been how long has it been since we had identified SARS-CoV-2 and how long have people been looking for this intermediate host species? It's been close to 2 years, right? Since if we think that the earliest cases were November, but mm -hmm. if we count from when it was first isolated, so December or early January 2020, 
then it, it, it's still been close to two years and like yeah. zero signs, like zero leads, no no sign of SARS-like viruses circulating in animal trading community in up there in central China. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, this city, this city of Wuhan, it houses the world's foremost expertise on tracking SARS outbreaks. Yeah. Like the so you've experts. got the most, <laughs> the most qualified human beings on the planet for doing yeah. something like this. Everyone, I mean, on both sides, uh, on the US side of this and on the China side of this, are completely motivated to find this intermediate mm-hmm. host species for various reasons, mm-hmm. and yet we haven't done it yet. So either, I, that, to me, that means one of two things is true. Either there is no intermediate host species because this is not how the virus came into humans, or for reasons that really you can't explain right now, it's re- been really, really difficult to track down this intermediate host because this virus is somehow unlike the other viruses that have done this before. Yeah, and, and the the problem here is that some extremely basic routes of inquiry have either not been done or they have been done, but we haven't been told what the outcomes are. So for example, some of the farms that were supplying the low levels of wild animals to Wuhan, they were shut down by the Chinese government and apparently didn't even test those farms for SARS-CoV-2. So why? The first thing you should do is test those farms first, right? They didn't even want to shut them down. So you definitively identify the source of the virus. Uh, another thing is the first cases like why didn't they contact trace the first cases like this is the most obvious thing to do is to figure out like have you been exposed to someone who worked in a lab mm-hmm. uh you know and, and taking samples from the animal trading community there to see whether are there many other SARS viruses circulating in the city is this a place that you expect a novel SARS virus to emerge mm-hmm. but so far it looks like nothing there's zero evidence to suggest that Wuhan would be a place where SARS like viruses are emerging I mean, one of the major themes here is just that, like, people people lie so often. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the waitress from the SARS one outbreak. Are there civet cats in your restaurant? Nope. And then you go, and there are. You you know, you mentioned already stories of um, you know people claiming that certain lines of inquiry were just off limits, and and we can't ask those questions that certain things were just preposterous like a lab leak even though that those people at the time that they said that knew that this stuff you know happens all of the time basically mm-hmm. and so you know people are, are basically just lying or, or withholding information everywhere that that you look in this story i mean I, this doesn't mean that there's a giant conspiracy so i just want to make that That's super clear point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so what what does it mean so if it's not if it's not a giant conspiracy how do you explain something like this and and what kind of language are you, would you use to do that because i do think this is an important point for most for many people so let's look at the virus itself too this virus is extremely stealthy like you a lot of people have had COVID without knowing <laughs> that they had COVID. And a lot of people who might not have had COVID but had similar illnesses think that they had COVID. So it has a, it presents a range of symptoms. Like you can have sore throat, fever, diarrhea, like loss of smell, or you might have no symptoms that you felt at the time. Uh, it can spread before someone develops symptoms or when they have only mild symptoms. So even if a virus like this spilled over at the market or in a lab, the first people who were sick may not have known uh, and that's why contact tracing the first detected cases is so important, but somehow hasn't been done. It's it's pretty bizarre. Um, if people don't know for sure that they were the first cases, why would you go out there and put yourself out for the firing squad? So, um, 
no no one seems to be looking and no one wants to find the answer why would you volunteer yourself out there to, to take the heat mm -hmm. okay so let's um let's zoom out a bit so let's sort of step away from um the human controversy and like the politics and all of that stuff and let's let's think about this like scientists we've got sort mm -hmm. of two uh, plausible explanations for where the virus came from. One is that it jumped into humans from another mammalian species, potentially jumping into that species from yet uh, another species. Mm -hmm. And that's called the wildlife spillover hypothesis. Happens often. We have many cases in history where that's happened. Um, the other is the lab leak hypothesis that there was an accidental leak from a virus, leak of a virus from a lab. And that also happens. So these are both plausible. And let's think about how we compare and contrast the plausibility of these two by considering what we know about the virus itself. So let's go inside the virus and talk about what its genome looks like. What characteristics are salient to you about the genome of this virus? So the genome of SARS-CoV-2 looks mostly very natural. So by that, I mean, it looks very similar to other SARS-like viruses that have been found in the wild. There's, there's no like humongous appendage in there saying that I came from a lab. So <laughs> there's only one very minor but unique feature called a furin cleavage site. And this is a feature that lies inside the spike of a coronavirus. So the spike gene encodes a spike protein that sticks out of the coronavirus particle and it latches onto whole cells and unlocks the door or window to get into the cell and let the virus uh, hijack the cell and make more copies of itself. So this, in this family of SARS-like viruses, no one has ever seen a furin cleavage site insertion in the spike like this one. So none, none of the other SARS-like viruses have a furin cleavage site there at that junction in the spike. But there has become a trend, like a fashion in, in research for scientists to insert these furin cleavage sites into novel viruses, novel coronaviruses in the lab to, to see how does this novel feature impact the infectiousness of the virus. And so when, when the genome of SARS-CoV-2 was first published uh, in early January 2020, a lot of the scientists who saw this feature got really concerned. And, and you can see it from leaked emails or like freedom of information acquired emails that they were all talking about it privately. They're like, this is chilling. This is like, could it be potentially engineered? Um, there are some scientists who are even more strongly convinced that it, it's a smoking gun, maybe or that it's, it's so highly unusual that perhaps a engineered origin of the site should be the default. I see. So this, this aspect of the genome, this thing called the furin cleavage site, it has characteristics that are quite easy to explain if you suppose that a scientist took a natural virus and inserted this thing into that viral genome because this is the type of thing that happens all the time in labs like this. Um, but it's not so, so unusual that it could not possibly have arisen naturally. It is possible that it arose naturally. Yes. So the issue is that there, there are two types of scientists at this point. That's the type of scientist that said, if it looks natural, then it must be natural. And and that's the other side that says, even if it looks natural, it could still be engineered because the technology today is so good. We can just throw in things like uh, in whatever approach we want, leaving no trace of engineering. Mm -hmm. So no matter how, how the frame shifts or no matter what code is used, uh, you cannot rule out an engineered origin or a natural origin of this furin cleavage site. 
So basically, genetics is so advanced these days that when we do engineer things artificially into a genome, we're so good at doing that that we can just、mm-hmm. like smoothly put stuff into a genome such that it looks perfectly natural, and therefore we can't really distinguish whether something was of natural origin or artificial origin just by looking at the genome itself. Yeah, and this was really problematic in early 2020 because. People so desperately wanted to know whether this genome was of SARS-CoV-2 was genetically engineered that they threw it to some scientists who, quite, I think maybe overly confidently, <laughs> they they said that yeah we ran a few minutes of machine learning and and can rule out the genetic engineering origin of this genome. But in parallel, at the same time, scientists in Europe. And scientists in the U.S. separately, within two weeks, recreated the entire genome of SARS-CoV-2 from scratch. So, <laughs> exactly、uh, like they had to put in mutations to di- differentiate it from the parent because they were so good at making these synthetic coronavirus genomes. So you can't tell. You can't tell if maybe a scientist collected a rare、uh, specimens in nature and just synthesized the virus.、Mm-hmm. It would just look natural. Okay, so. Identifying something like the sphere and cleavage site inside of the genome of this virus can't definitively tell you one way or the other whether or not it was a natural thing or whether it was an artificial thing. What do we know about? You know, was the Wuhan Institute of Virology or anyone else doing or planning to do exactly this type of experiment where we would put in this type of site into a coronavirus? Yeah, so I can tell you've read the book <laughs> because at the end, at the end of the book.、Uh, And we had to rush this off for printing in in September、uh, this year.、Um, bombshell documents leaked onto the internet. So this one, these batch of documents were not even obtained via Freedom of Information Act. They were they were they were leaked. Yeah. From so, from where? We don't know, but they were leaked through the Drastic Internet Sleuth、uh, Group,、um, and they posted it online. And、uh, in those documents, which were grant proposals from early 2018. Submitted by the EcoHealth Alliance in collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and other collaborators, they had proposed searching for novel furin cleavage sites or other cleavage sites in nature in natural viruses and inserting these into novel SARS-like viruses in the laboratory. So this was a, an idea proposed in early 2018, and even though the proposal wasn't funded by that、uh, application, so the application didn't go through. Partly because the the reviewer said this research looks kind of dangerous, <laughs>、um, but it doesn't mean that they didn't get the money from elsewhere. This was a very highly funded like、yes. group of scientists,、yes. like hundreds of millions of dollars. The other thing that's important to mention here, and I, I went over this in my discussion with Nicholas Wade, is if you know anything about the mechanics of how science actually happens and how that connects to the grant proposals you write, when you write a grant proposal, that doesn't mean. That this is all stuff in the future. Oftentimes,、mm-hmm. you write a grant proposal to get additional funding to do stuff that you've already started to do, and you have some preliminary evidence for. Yeah, and if you read this grant proposal, it's actually, I I feel like it's quite clear, or at least very reasonable to to deduce that they had already started because they said, yeah, we are reviewing our sequencing data, and there are these novel rare cleavage sites we see in novel SARS-like viruses. So. If they hadn't already seen this, how could they predict that and write write it into their grant?、Mm-hmm. Because no one has has observed these sites before.、Mm-hmm. So, tell me if this is accurate. So now I want to connect this to something that we mentioned earlier about that that database that disappeared. So if、mm-hmm. I'm the Eco Health Alliance and I'm the Wuhan Institute of Virology at the time that they wrote this grant proposal, the basic thought I'm having and the, and what I'm justifying this work 
to do is I'm saying, hey, we want to tinker around with these viruses. We've collected a bunch of these viruses. We've put them all in the same spot. We are doing experiments and messing around with their genomes. And it's all in good faith, right? It's all done with the idea that we are going to identify how these viruses work and how they can change in order to be able to play defense, to prevent an actual outbreak from happening. And all of that data is going to be put into this giant database, which will be our pandemic prevention database. And that sort of would have been the thinking around why they were trying to do this. Yes, I, I believe that the scientists engaging in this type of work believed in their noble mission. So they weren't like crazy mad scientists, like the stereotype, like, mm -hmm. oh, sorry. Uh, no, my keep going, keep Google going. calendar popped up something. Oh, sorry, let me go back to that. <laughs> um, they went like the scientists in Jurassic World or something, you know, you're splicing together all these dangerous animals to create the most ferocious like dinosaur chimera possible. Yeah. But they, they actually were trying to understand basic viral biology and develop therapeutics and vaccines against novel emerging pathogens. And then, um, okay, so that, that grant proposal goes out, it gets rejected. Who, who's who's rejecting it? Is that happening in the US? Where does that rejection come from? Yes. So it was DAPA that received this proposal and rejected it. Um, and so the, the question is, why didn't all of the scientists who are in this proposal tell the rest of the world in January 2020, when a novel SARS-like virus with a novel furin cleavage site burst upon the doorsteps of the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan City. So did any of them even have a moment where they were like, you know, back in, in 2018, in early 2018, we had a pitch looking for these sites and putting them into novel SARS-like viruses. Like, could this SARS-2 virus have come from those research experiments? Okay. Um, is there anything else in, so this was a question that came online that I thought was really good. So aside from the furin cleavage site, which is very interesting and is an important sort of piece of the puzzle here, but it's not definitive. We can't really conclude anything from the furin cleavage site. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else about the SARS-2 genome that either the lab leak proponents or the wildlife spillover proponents claim is evidence for, for either hypothesis? Unless you're talking about the debunked like HIV inserts. I'm not sure what else. You, so you, you might so you, have to prime me. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm not either. I'm genuinely asking. So, so in your in your view, there's nothing else about the genome that's salient that that would sort of favor a natural origin versus a lab leak. Not one genome by itself, but if you look at all of the genomes that have been collected to date, um, I'd say that the genetic evidence points to the seafood market being a secondary site of infection. So a place where a human had brought the virus into the market. Sorry, there's a motorcycle. Yeah, just keep going. <laughs> so a human had brought the virus into the market and caused an outbreak there. Uh, but other than that, the genome, it doesn't tell us that, hey, I'm from a lab. Hmm. Why, why do you think the seafood, why do you say that the seafood market is uh, like a secondary site and that's not where it really started? So this is going to bring us on a, on a long journey into, into a fantastical realm of <laughs> a hypothesis called the multi-market hypothesis. So uh, recently, uh, scientists started discussing in more, at greater length, that uh, several early variants of SARS-CoV-2 were found outside of the market. So these other variants, early, very early variants from December, January uh, 
2020, they looked more similar to the bat viruses related to SARS-CoV-2. So many scientists uh, speculated that this means that the earliest version of SARS-CoV-2 never made its way into the seafood market. So the seafood market had its own variant that uh, uh, was found on, on the surfaces and in, in the cluster, the seafood market, but it didn't have all these other earlier variants found in other parts of the city. So a reasonable assumption is that the virus had started spreading way before the market, and one of the variants made its way into the, into the market and caused a cluster there. Some scientists who insist on the natural origin, <laughs> or they insist that the natural origin of SARS-CoV-2 is the most likely, they, they have now been pushing this hypothesis that, that not only was there one market where there was a natural spiller, but there were multiple markets in the city where multiple animals were spreading the virus. So no evidence for a single market where there was a single animal spreading it. But now we are hearing that these experts think there were multiple markets where there was natural spillover happening. I mean, to me, this is just like, you know, Copernicus and epicycles. Like it's, it's just, <laughs> you know, the, the hypothesis is becoming more complicated. They're just raising, <laughs> they, they can't even prove the natural origin and they're raising you to multiple natural origins. This is crazy. So, so when I spoke to Nicholas Wade, who, who's written um, very nicely on the subject, the point that he made was, he was like, look, given that we know how SARS-1 and MERS and other viruses have, have um, arisen in the past. We know that once you identify the culprit virus, it takes just usually a few months, if not less, as you pointed out, even just a few days, to identify when there is an intermediate host species if it did, in fact, jump the humans from another species. So his argument was every day that goes by makes it just that much more likely that this was, in fact, a lab leak as long as you keep um, failing to identify that intermediate host species, do you think that's a reasonable argument? Is that is that where we sit, where as more time goes on, the spillover hypothesis becomes less and less likely to be true? I can see why some people would want to uh, favor that that mindset, uh, but the I'd say the rival hypothesis to that or the rival mindset to that is that some natural origin proponents have said that maybe China is covering up a natural origin. So they say maybe China mm -hmm. has actually found the wild animals that were the source of SARS-CoV-2, but for some reason they're mm -hmm. hiding it to try and pitch a foreign origin, like the, the main lobster uh, hypothesis I see. I see. So <laughs> to deflect all blame from China. I see. Well, I mean, we're we're in the realm of speculation here, but I, I mean, mm -hmm. I would have said, I would have thought naturally, like, well, wouldn't China be motivated to show that it is of natural origin because it looks? That's what way, I think too. <laughs> looks way better. It look, that looks way better than that it leaked from a laboratory that was, you know, due to basically human failings. Um, but you're saying that people counter that and say, like, well, that may be true, but they actually want to show that it originated naturally from another country. Mm -hmm. um, again, that's. That's rank speculation. Um, but at the very least, as you pointed out, it's been almost two years. No intermediate host species has been identified. So it seems like the only two explanations on the table for that are either there's no intermediate host species or human beings, in this case in China, are actively covering up what the intermediate host species is. Or, or the last option is that the intermediate host species was being experimented with in a laboratory. I see. So we know that labs in Wuhan were using a variety of animal models. So they had kind of obscured the fact that they were catching bats and bringing these back into the lab for experimenting with, with SARS-like viruses. Mm -hmm. They were also experimenting with civet cats, the intermediate host of the first SARS 
pandemic or, or epidemic. And they were also working with humanized mice. So mice that carry the ACE2 uh, entry receptor for the SARS virus from humans. At so Wuhan, you could, you're talking about the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Yes. So they've got bats physically there. They've got civet cats physically there. They've got viruses mm -hmm. physically there. They've got humanized mm -hmm. mice. All of this stuff is in one place. You've already told us, and I've already learned from other people, that these laboratory accidental laboratory leaks happen all of the time. We know that they happen mm -hmm. every year, multiple times, even with more dangerous pathogens. Can you talk to me about the security uh, stringency in this lab? Is it even possible? Is it? Can a reasonable person conclude that you can do this kind of work and completely avoid a leak, or is it inevitable? So even the first SARS virus, after it started being studied in labs, escaped from a BSL-4, the highest biosafety lab once in Taiwan. Uh, and just due to luck, the person who had traveled across <laughs> out of the country, out of Taiwan to Singapore for a conference and came back to Taiwan on another international flight, he only developed symptoms after he returned home. But if he had developed symptoms just a day before he returned home, like it would have been another outbreak in across multiple countries. So um, the biosafety level of a lab, it matters, yes, but it's not foolproof. So even if you did the work at the bios, highest biosafety level, it doesn't mean that you never have an accident. Like all it takes is one mistake. Like mm -hmm. one day you're just really rushed, you want to get out of the lab and you do one thing wrong, like you're exposed. Uh, but here's, here's the thing, a lot of the dangerous virus research, unfortunately, was done at low biosafety levels in Wuhan. It was done at BSL-2, so two levels below BSL-4. And this level, most virologists will tell you that it is not acceptable for working with airborne pathogens because your only protection is essentially gloves. There will be times when you take your samples in and out of the tissue culture herd. Uh, you're looking at it under the microscope. You might even do like, uh, you know, things that could aerosolize the sample mm -hmm. at BSL-2. like. This is just, I mean, it, it's not surprising to me that if you were work, working with hundreds of SARS-like viruses and maybe putting in advantageous features that one of them might spill. Okay, so to summarize all of that, what you're saying is that it's common practice at certain laboratories in the world to bring in intermediate or potential intermediate host species to bring in viruses you've collected from samples outside the lab to tinker with all of these things in different ways inside the lab and th to do that inside of a set of security protocols which no reasonable person would conclude will actually contain any pathogen in a foolproof way yeah and that's just that's just simply where we're at that's just what happens in in this neck of the woods in a city where you can take a plane to almost any other major city in the world. So it's, it's like throwing a gender review party in a, in a place that hasn't rained for many, many months in the forest, right? It's just, it's extremely dangerous. I, I think that these uh, laboratories should be moved out of urban centers, moved away from like airports, international airports. And why? why are they in urban centers? And there, there's probably a very simple reason for this, but let's just make it very clear to people. What, why isn't that already true? So a lot of scientists say that if you move these prestigious laboratories out of major city centers, then you won't be able to recruit the best scientists to do this work. Uh, I think that's kind of a lazy excuse, to be honest. Like mm -hmm. we could be building this like fantastic, beautiful like city in the middle of nowhere where scientists all around the world can come and do their risky pathogen research, quarantine, get tested, 
and then go home. Uh, so if you did that, you would localize all these hundreds of different groups doing risky pathogen research under different standards, bring them all into one place where you can actually monitor and surveil for escapes. And then just make this place just a wonderful place to be, right? Don't, don't put it in the middle of like the tundras or something. Make it a place where scientists actually want to come. Then everyone will be writing grants and proposing to bring their work there. This just brings the the consequences of a potential escape, a lab escape, down by magnitudes. Because even if someone there gets sick in this isolated city, it's not like they're going to hop on the plane immediately and bring it to like New York or mm -hmm. like Barcelona or mm -hmm. <laughs> Rome. Yeah. So you wrote, you and Matt wrote near to the end of the book, you said, quote, if another pandemic of ambiguous origins occurs in the next decade, you can call it SARS-CoV-3, MERS-CoV-2, <laughs> influenza, whatever. Then unless we learn key lessons from this pandemic, we will make the same mistakes. So in your view, what are the key lessons that we should be learning based on what we know today? So we have to, even if this virus came from the wildlife trade, it doesn't mean that in the future, no pandemics and no outbreaks will come from labs. In fact, it's becoming increasingly frequent, like more likely because we are getting more labs and more money for hunting for novel viruses. And so we have to start putting in new measures like ASAP to make this type of pathogen research more transparent and accountable and safer. So things like localizing all of that research to one place on the planet when people have good quarantine protocols, I think that that should be done and, and more transparent so that there are things you can do, like uh, penalizing people who hold on to pathogen data for years without telling anybody, uh, encouraging people to, to publish as quickly as possible in, in the top journals. Like just journals shouldn't be telling people to st accumulate data for years and years so that when the pandemic happens, you, you suddenly realize I have no insight to any of the viruses collected in the past five years. Like there should be new protocols in place to, so that all the data gets uploaded to an international database where nobody can just take it offline immediately. Uh, there's so many things you can do. Um, so what would, um, at this point, what would definitive evidence for a lab leak or definitive evidence from for a wildlife spillover actually look like? So I am not sure that we will get definitive evidence unless a whistleblower comes forward. And that may not happen for like years. It may not happen for decades until someone feels safe enough to share that secret. Um, it, it wouldn't require a lot of people to know, frankly, if people have suspicions, right? But who has that actual evidence? Who has the actual like notebook or like health record or animal test that shows that the virus actually came from here? Probably only a handful of people have that definitive evidence. So everyone else is just kept in the dark. They have mm -hmm. their doubts, but they don't know enough to become a whistleblower. Um, but I do think that there is plenty of evidence out here in the United States that should be evaluated as soon as possible. Uh, we shouldn't be banking on a whistleblower to come out. Like you, you can't do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. You shouldn't uh, put all your hopes on one person. Well, what could the government be doing? So for example, the Eco Health Alliance is a US organization. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's entirely reasonable to suspect that they have a copy of that missing database that we mentioned earlier. Can't Congress just just walk in and say, we're going to pick apart everything in your building and you know we, we're going to take your laptops and we're simply just going to see what you have. Is that, is that reasonable? 
there's certainly people in government who are calling for the Equal Health Alliance, and even virologists are calling for the Equal Health Alliance to release all of their documents, data, emails with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and other people working with SARS-like viruses. Um, for me, I think that this is such a fast-moving issue. Just remember that in May of this year, it was still basically a conspiracy theory, according to top experts, right? So we are like half a year out. Uh, lots of stuff are being leaked. Lots of stuff are being foiled. Freedom Information Act. Uh, most of it has come out in the last two months, in mm -hmm. September and October. So I think we're far from done. So, Like you said, the, the book that I wrote with Matt Redley, it, it's not a conclusion. At the end of the book, we're really saying that there's so much more coming out like this you need to get caught up on all that's already happened so that you can understand the significance of new developments mm -hmm. one of the things that i thought was interesting is when i looked at the acknowledgments section of the book typically you get to the end of the book and you probably don't even look at the acknowledgments because it's just you know i, I want to thank my parents and my girlfriend and my <laughs> editor and you know the people that i worked with um but but you say you know, that a lot of people helped you, ranging from scientists to junior researchers to intelligence officials to anonymous individuals to journalists, politicians, et cetera, et cetera. You said, because, quote, because it would be unwise and unhelpful, possibly even dangerous to name some of them, we have taken the unusual decision to name none of them. And I think we understand what that means, given what we've discussed. I'm curious how you being involved in this whole thing is impacting you and your trajectory, your career trajectory as a scientist. So you're a postdoc, which for people that don't know, that means you completed your PhD, you've now moved on and you're doing another line of research as a postdoc. And typically on the, the normal academic track, the next step would be to apply to become an assistant professor at a major university. So what, what sort of trajectory are you on and how is this book and everything you've done on this topic affecting all of that? So I'll first say that this book will offend and threaten a lot of powerful people, unfortunately. And this was never our intention, you know, we just want to help people learn about what has been found relating to the origin of COVID-19. But it will disturb a lot of people who will say that we are racist or, or say that we are anti-China. Uh, it, will, it, will, it might offend the Chinese government. Honestly, I, I suspect that it will offend them. And so, for example, when the seeker, uh, the key internet sleuth who's been contributing to the search for the origin, he, he went through radio silence on Twitter for about two weeks and everyone has been freaking out because they're worried that someone got him. So it, it's real, like we're worried about each other. Like we're worried that maybe one day there will be like a clampdown that anyone named in the acknowledgements, anyone seen as a key contributor to to letting the lab leak or lab origin hypothesis see the light of day, they might get they might get taken down in some way. Like they might get hacked, they might get disappeared, they might get abducted. So these are real fears, real concerns. But on top of that, on top of enraging possibly the most powerful country on earth, the most scariest government on earth. Um, it will also offend a lot of scientists and science journalists. So people who are more establishment who control the flow of money and publications in, in research, they have been calling the lab origin a conspiracy theory for more than a year. <laughs> they have lost a lot of face. Uh, when, when the Biden administration uh, called for the intelligence community to, to produce a report on both uh, lab and natural origins, it, it, 
I think it humiliated a lot of these establishment scientists who had been telling everyone that you must be crazy to think this comes from a lab. Maybe not even just crazy, but racist to think it comes from a lab. And then now that suddenly they're, they're shown wrong. They have had to slowly shift their opinion from conspiracy theory to possible but not plausible to plausible but not probable yeah, to does yeah. it even matter? <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of... Um, the book will offend them. I expect to see a lot of flames. In fact, I, I hope that a copy of this book reaches the Equal Health Alliance <laughs> and other virologists who have tried to shut down discourse on this topic. Um, but for me, as a junior, like early career researcher, I think, well, I'll use the words of my, my friends who have said you, you've committed career suicide. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I We'll have to watch my back in the future and and mm -hmm. i don't think i can use my name on like applications for things anymore because you never know who is the one reviewing your grant application or your publication and tell people um wh where are you from and where's your family from oh um i was born in canada but i grew up in singapore and then i moved back to canada and now i am based in boston and so how would this has this impacted whether or not, for example, you might go visit family in Singapore or something like that? I I am cautious because I have seen, for example, the Chinese state media have branded people calling for an investigation of lab origins. They've called them terrorists. And we know what China does to people they call terrorists. So it's not it's not a joke, you know, like these people being tortured and then put in camps. So I I'm worried. Like, I, I, it's not like I can just decide to go home anymore or to visit family and friends in Singapore. So, what um, what do you think comes next? Is basically the the next thing to do for people that are working or, or following this uh, mystery is is it just to wait for more documents to get FOIAed and or leaked? What's sort of the next step, or or what are you working on right now? So, I think it is very important to organize formal and, and uh, international uh, investigations of the origin of COVID-19. So right now, the World Health Organization has just set up its own uh, scientific advisory group uh, for the origins work called SAGO. Uh, but this team is extremely imbalanced. It has most of the team members from the previous team, which failed spectacularly. Uh, several of the team members have called the lab origin a conspiracy theory. Uh, a classic conspiracy theory. <laughs> and so they, and many of them have vested interest in making sure this virus doesn't come from a lab because they could lose funding. They could be blamed for the pandemic even. Um, so we cannot rely on this WHO investigation that there have to be in parallel independent investigations. Uh, it's already very shocking to me that two years post outbreak, there is still no formal investigation of the origin of COVID-19. I mean, when you think about you know, global official organizations like the World Health Organization, when you think about other agencies that we could talk about, what has this whole episode, how, is it, how does it make you feel about the, um, the state of those institutions? Is it, have you lost confidence in them and their ability to do what they're supposed to be doing? And, and if so, what does that say about the future? Yeah, you can actually see this transition or change in mind in my tweets <laughs> over the past 
year and a half. Like in, in May 2020, uh, when other people were telling me the WHO can't do this, like they are biased, they are puppets, or like they, you know, they have no influence. I actually tweeted something like, no, the WHO is the only organization that can do this. And today I'm like, they are the organization that cannot do this. Like <laughs> <laughs> they've they've demonstrated time and again that they they lack the influence, the mandate and and any power to 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 stand up against a member state like China. So they were completely constrained. They, they were forced to uh, participate. Well, okay, let me let me take back that word forced. They 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 agreed to participate in in like a circus, like a Potemkin uh, visit to Wuhan city where they were shown like the cold storage area of a seafood market and like told to sign off on the report that said frozen cold chain like frozen seafood were more likely to be the source of this pandemic than a lab accident so it just cannot be trusted to do this investigation again um <laughs> we we need a real investigation so like we need one that is ideally uh, has the power to subpoena or obtain documents from let's say the Equal Health Alliance, uh, has international support. Because a lot of these documents are not just in the US, they spread out around the world. There were many people collaborating with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We know now from leaked documents that seven countries were sending SARS-like virus samples up to Wuhan city in the years leading up to the pandemic. Seven countries. So like we we, we cannot do this just like America alone. <laughs> there needs to be an international agreement to investigate, but not through the World Health Organization. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, Alina, thank you for your time. Um, thank you and Matt for putting together the book. I mean, if anyone is interested in what we actually know at this point about all of the major events um, associated with COVID-19, this book basically documents all of them um, very meticulously. There's even, as I mentioned before, a really nice timeline, literally a timeline in the back that has all of the key events in order. And it really sort of spells out where we're at. And even though the the book doesn't come to a conclusion. It's really an ongoing mystery. Um, it really probably is the best resource for actually understanding all of the all of the pieces here, and there are many. So um, I'll just thank you for your time. And if there's any final thoughts you have, uh, feel free to share them now. No, oh, thank you so much for the praise for the book. We had written it to be the book on the origin of COVID nineteen, and so we had each decided to take on the risk of offending powerful players in order to write this book so that as many people as possible around the world can have a resource to understand what has been found, both in terms of the chances of this virus coming from the wildlife trade versus from research activities. And and one last time, what's the title of the book? When does it come out and, and where do you get it? The title is Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. The book releases on November 16, Tuesday. So in five days from now. Very exciting, uh, very exhausting journey, but I'm glad that it is paying off. Like, I, I hope lots of people read the book and I look forward to both positive and negative feedback. <laughs>